This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, Disney celebrates 100 years this month. You'll hear about Walt Disney's relationship with New Orleans. And we'll get a sneak peek at the National World War II Museum's Liberation Pavilion opening this week. But first... Drive throughout the South and you'll encounter towns that have been erased, places that were once full of culture and community, devastated, and in some cases wiped off the map entirely. This, after major environmental shifts, some natural, some man-made. Over the next few days, the Gulf States Newsroom is bringing you stories of three of these towns in our region in a series called Place Erased. To start things off, reporters Drew Hawkins and Danny MacArthur talk about how this project came to be. So, Danny, this whole series is actually your brainchild. Uh, Let's start with how you got the inspiration for it. Yeah, started all the way back in January when I went on this bus tour through the Diamond community in Norco, Louisiana. It's mostly black and it was bought out by Shell, you know, that big petrochemical company. It got me thinking about like some of the other places that have been displaced by industry. Um, And I found that there were quite a lot of them. We got to visit three different places in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. And Danny, we'll let you kick things off with a story about an Alabama town that once was. Hello, how are you? Good, good. Hello. All right, Woody, come on. Come on, come on, Woody. About an hour east of Birmingham, Mike Wadsworth's house sits on a road that drops off into a lake. It's one of the few remains of the town of Eastonville. Eastonville was just kind of a wide spot in the road. We had about three stores, had about three or four churches. His own family settled in Eastonville in the mid-1800s, when it was mainly a rural farming town. When he was growing up, he says it was a prosperous area. It was supposed to be a sign of progress. The area was getting a green energy source. It would increase the value and double as a recreation spot. But there was a downside. Alabama Power began buying up property for the lake. Eastonville residents had to leave. I saw one man cry because he didn't even think he was gonna get enough money off his hundred or so acres farm to build a house for his family. And Wadsworth has vivid memories of houses and trees being burned to clear land for the lake. And it was just like Hades at night, just fire everywhere. Within four years, the dam was built. Every day, the water would come up a little higher and a little higher, and you could see what it was going to look like. And it was just amazing to see that much water flooding. Eventually, Eastonville was underwater. Flash forward to today, and you have a town that only exists in the memories of former residents, like Joanne Wynette. There is a picture of the cotton gin, and... This is the house I grew up in. We're in a hallway in Wynette's home. Photos of her drowned hometown cover it from top to bottom. And the Methodist Church, see that a road right there? It was just on the other side, and that's just the steeple. And there is Harmon's grocery store. There is a silver lining here for her. She lives on the part of her family's land that wasn't flooded, meaning she has lakefront property now. If I'm not busy... It's relaxing to look out at the water, and on holidays, there's all kind of boats, and it's busy, busy, busy. Logan Martin Lake rapidly grew into a tourist destination. 
but the fact remains that people were displaced by its arrival. 60 years after Eastonville was sacrificed in the name of progress, residents near an Alabama mountain faced the same threat. We were frantic, basically terrified. Fran Summerlin lives near Chandler Mountain, in a community in northeast Alabama less than an hour away from what remains of Eastonville. Her family farm, where her brother is buried, was threatened when Alabama Power proposed another massive hydro project. She wasn't aware of Eastonville's buried past, but she can sympathize with what they were going through. Well, that's what they wanted to do to us. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that community fought it or if they just gave up. Because you cannot believe how many people told us there's no use in fighting it, there's no hope. When the dam that drowned Eastonville was built, there were very few environmental laws on the books that would have given ordinary people the opportunity to weigh in on a project like that. But residents of Chandler Mountain, like Mark Smith, have a lot more firepower now. From, from the outset, I was not in favor of this in any form or fashion. This latest dam proposal promised to be a green energy source. But residents were concerned about endangered species, damage to the mountain, and the drowning of important cultural heritage sites. We shouldn't be destroying our environment in the name of saving our environment. Residents packed community meetings and pressured politicians to voice opposition to the dam project proposed by Alabama Power. Because this is a smaller community and a lesser known place, they expected that there wouldn't be much pushback to this. They were wrong. In August, Alabama Power announced it wasn't going to seek a license for the project after all. Now, the communities have started the nonprofit to continue their fight to protect Chandler Mountain. They managed to avoid Eastonville's fate, a drowned town preserved only in memory. One day, there will be no one left, making Eastonville a ghost town in the truest sense. That was the Gulf States Newsroom's Drew Hawkins and Danny MacArthur on their new series, Place Erased. There will be a lot of fanfare in the New Orleans Central Business District this week as the National World War II Museum gears up for the grand opening of its highly anticipated Liberation Pavilion. The opening celebrates the museum's final permanent exhibit hall, exploring the end of World War II and the war's continuing impact today. Michael Bell, the museum's executive director of the Jenny Craig Institute for the Study of War and Democracy, joins us now. Michael, welcome to Louisiana Consider. Well, thank you, Diane. This is a monumental project, capping the extensive growth of the World War II Museum's campus. Tell me, what propelled the museum's growth, and how has it expanded a little more than two decades since the founding fathers, University of New Orleans professors Stephen Ambrose and Gordon Nick Mueller, opened a single exhibit hall formerly known as the D-Day Museum back in 2000? Well, even before the D-Day Museum opened, there were already pushes to expand the museum, cover, you know, D-Days in the Pacific. And, you know, Senator Ted Stevens and Senator Daniel Inouye, for example, were very uh, active in urging the museum to tell the whole story of the war. And they were instrumental in the in the legislation that Congress passed, designating the D-Day Museum as the National World War II Museum. And as such, gave it the responsibility for the mission to tell the American story of the war not just why it's fought and how it's won, but what it means today. And so the what it means today really is this liberation pavilion with the themes of liberation and freedom. It'll really bring to light why World War II matters. So why does World War II matter? I would argue 
fundamentally it will change the world. It introduces notions of international human rights, the defense of democracy and freedom. It creates the institutions that many of us take for granted, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, but also NATO uh, and other defensive alliances around the world. At home, it created American prosperity, but it also was the catalyst for incredible social change. A number of veterans participate in the civil rights movement, in the struggle for women's equality, for Latino rights, for Americans with disabilities. And then there's incredible technology that the war spins off, everything from plastic and penicillin to nuclear power to, you know, leisure travel, space travel, the technology in your cell phone. And so I think many of the things that we just take for granted as part of our everyday life really have their origin in World War II, but particularly in American leadership and choices toward the end of the war and in the immediate post-war world. What is being explored in the new three-story Liberation Pavilion as the museum pays tribute to the men and women who helped secure victory in World War II? What will visitors experience on the first floor? What stories are being told? The theme is finding hope in a world destroyed. We're focusing on the incredible challenge and the cost, but particularly in the human dimension. You know, how costly was this war? You know, 65 million people killed. I think many Americans will be shocked by that because that's not the extent of American casualties as serious as those are. And, and the majority of those victims are civilians. But we'll also see uh, some amazing artifacts. We have a, a transit case that brought back a, an American soldier to be reburied with his family in Lorain, Ohio. We've got artifacts from civilian internees, from concentration camp survivors, from prisoners of war, from those wounded in the war. To give you a a kind of sneak preview, there's an amazing violin that's crafted by an American officer who's a a prisoner of war in in Germany after he was shot down. He built a, a violin while he's in the camp. On the other hand, there's a loincloth from an American who was 16 years old, captured at Wake Island. Uh, stripped by the Japanese and then has to wear a loincloth as he's a slave laborer for the next three years. And he'll later testify in the war crimes trials. So you have these incredible contrasts, but all very personal that reflect this. And then from there, there's several galleries that that kind of lay out the Holocaust and German racial policies and feature Anne Frank, uh, because many Americans, that'll be their introduction to the Holocaust, but then it'll be much uh, more grim, well, uh, kind of a a sense of uh, a bunk room in a concentration camp facility with these amazing oral histories of concentration camp survivors. From there, the visitors, uh, an opportunity to to feature faith in wartime, which had been a key aspect of Roosevelt's four freedoms as he saw it as a war aim. There's an incredible story about the USS Dorchester, which had been a troop ship that was torpedoed in the North Atlantic. And there's four chaplains on board uh, two Protestant ministers, a Catholic priest and Jewish rabbi, they'll give up their gloves and their life jackets because there's not enough. And they'll go down with the ship praying together. Some great oral histories, both from chaplains and service members, some whose faith was increased by the war, others who lost their faith, but also people on the home front that are you know, praying for their service members return. Uh, some incredible artifacts in there. And then the, the rest of the first floor features the story of the monuments, men and women lays out, you know, the Nazis grand design for looted art, both from, you know, the art galleries they overrun, but also 
what's stolen from the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And then there's an immersive gallery that recreates the salt mine at Altsay, where the Germans had, had hidden much of this treasure. And then finally, a gallery that would be similar to what you'd see in the Quai d'Orsay or the Louvre, with incredible reproductions of fine arts. Now, as we ascend to the second floor, what will we find? What's the focus there? Coming home, new opportunities and new challenges. And the big idea is if you're going to wage a war, you actually have to do so that produces a better peace. So this will set out these new responsibilities, both abroad and at home, in the fight for freedom. And so then as we come through, the first one is about reestablishing the rule of law and justice. And it lays out the the war crimes trials, the, the trials for the crimes against humanity, crimes against the peace uh, at Nuremberg and you know Dachau, uh, Tokyo, Yokohama, uh, Manila, and with some incredible artifacts there that you know actually will give the visitors you know pause. Some evidence used in the trials, others uh, you know uh, effects of those who were executed for the war crimes. Um, and some oral histories of Americans who were actual guards in these events and guarded these prisoners, but also some of the prosecutors that had to prosecute them is very, very powerful. And then it, it introduces the theme, you know, with the integration of the armed forces. You know, how does America, you know, it champions freedom abroad, but what do we have to do at home? What are the pressures on American democracy and society? And how do we, you know, do this in the face of Cold War and you know, potential nuclear age and the pressures on that. That then sets up the, the the next galleries on prosperity and change. But then we move into the social impact tied to those who served in the war to, to see, you know, the impact of, of veterans and those who served on the home front in the struggle for civil rights or other equality. Uh, Rosa Parks, I think people will be surprised. She served in a defense job at Maxwell Field during the war. And while she's on base, she could ride anywhere on the bus. But then as the bus left the base, she would have to go to the back of the bus. And as she said, you know, Maxwell Field first opened my eyes to the alternatives to this ugly, oppressive policies of Jim Crow. And so, you know, there's this, this connection to the war that I don't think Many, uh, you know, see those, the relevance, if you will, but how war becomes a catalyst for these changes uh, in the process. And then the last gallery gives the, the visitors and the veterans the last voice. Third floor, what happens there? So the third floor experience is an immersive environment that features the theater that actually rotates. The museum's mission, tell the story about why the war is fought, how it's won, what it means today. All three components of that mission are covered in that theater experience. So I think you're going to love it. Michael Bell is the World War II Museum's executive director of the Jenny Craig Institute for the Study of War and Democracy. Thanks so much for being here. Well, you're welcome, Diane. I enjoyed it. Thank you. The National World War II Museum's grand opening of its Liberation Pavilion will take place on Friday, November 3rd. More info is online at nationalworldwar2museum.org. From WWNL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. 
This month marks 100 years of Disney. That's right, the company was officially founded on October 16, 2023. And as many New Orleanians know, there are countless connections between our city and the Disney universe. The New Orleans-inspired resorts at the theme parks and the Princess and the Frog movie are just two examples of the influence of this city on the Disney company and on Walt Disney himself. Here to tell us more about this connection between these two worlds, both magical in their own right, is Joan Fetter a writer who has published works on Disney travel sites, including allears.net. She is also a self-described Disney aficionada. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Can you start by telling us about Walt Disney's relationship with New Orleans? When did he first visit the city? How often did he come? And what was it about New Orleans that seemed to resonate with him? He actually had a fascination going back to his childhood with the river and steamboats. He served in World War One as after World War One as an ambulance driver. And one of his plans when he returned was to take a raft with a friend down the Mississippi River. Um, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, Steamboat Bill, took place on a steamboat, obviously. And um, he was a big fan of the setting and the music. He visited very often. He was there for sure in 1946 researching his film, Song of the South. And he came back later in the 50s where he actually met with Blaine Kern, Mr. Mardi Gras, the parade float designer, where he offered him a job. But uh, Blaine Kern said no. Um and he also went back at the end of towards the end of his life where he was buying antiques and furniture for an apartment he was getting set up at Disneyland. And of course, there are even New Orleans themed sections of the theme parks. The original French Quarter Square opened in Disneyland in 1955, followed by Port Orleans in Disney World in 1991. Tell us about these spots and how they incorporate New Orleans history and culture. Well, Disneyland from the beginning had a big river and a Mississippi steamboat. Um, Walt always intended to have a New Orleans area in the Disneyland Park, and it opened a couple of weeks after Disneyland itself opened in 1955. Um, in the early 60s, they started building New Orleans Square, which was the first new land added to Disneyland after its opening. And it opened in July of 1966. It's got wrought iron railings and side streets and Mardi Gras beads hanging from the balconies and flower baskets. It's a very immersive atmosphere. There's also a very small area in Adventureland in Tokyo Disneyland. In addition to that, they opened a uh, resort area that's now called Port Orleans. It's actually two different resorts that are sort of sister resorts. The Port Orleans itself is a French Quarter feel again. This is in Florida, and it, it features cobblestone streets and gas lamps and more wrought iron uh, balconies. It's decorated very festively in the lobby area. And again, Blaine Kern artists uh, were responsible for creating many of the Mardi Gras props that you see at Port Orleans. Its sister resort, Port Orleans Resorts Riverside, looks more like the mansions of the Garden District or the rural Louisiana that surrounds New Orleans. I know that Disney World itself was almost built in New Orleans. Why did the company want to build a resort there? 
What locations were they scouting, and why did they ultimately decide to build elsewhere? According to a Times Picayune article in the early 90s, the area they were looking at was Bayou Sauvage, which is now, as you know, a wildlife refuge. The, the article cites Sam Caruso, who used to be mayor of Slidell, and they had aides out there around the time of the Kennedy assassination looking at parcels of land. The reason that the Times-Picayune says that they didn't build in New Orleans was due to political shakedowns. Every time they met with somebody in Louisiana, purportedly, a handout was asked for, whereas in Orlando, tax breaks were offered, and that was the deciding factor. We are speaking with Joan Fetter, former writer with AllEars.net, about the history of the relationship between New Orleans and the magical world of Disney. In 2009, Disney released Princess and the Frog and introduced us all to Tiana, who was inspired by famed New Orleans chef Leah Chase. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone in New Orleans that doesn't know about Leah Chase, but why don't you tell us a little bit about her and why she served as the inspiration for Disney's first black princess? Well, the directors of the film went to speak to Leah Chase because of her backstory. She started out, at least in part, working as a waitress in the French Quarter. And then she married her husband, Dookie Chase, who the restaurant is named for. His parents owned a sandwich shop, and they developed it, Dookie and Leah developed it into a sit-down restaurant that we're all very familiar with today. And... um they found her story and her hospitality and activity in the civil rights movement very inspiring and used her to base Tiana on. And why do you think New Orleans served as the setting for this movie? Can you tell us about parts of the city and the surrounding area that were animated for this film? Again, the directors uh, were the ones who also co-wrote the movie, and they felt too many fairy tales had been set in Europe. So they decided to do an American fairy tale and chose New Orleans as a tribute to the history of its city, of the city and for its magical qualities. But also because their boss at the time, John Lasseter, that was his favorite city. <laughs> so that was a reason they figured it would help him get the movie made, I think. Um, they spent about 10 days in Louisiana before they started to write the film. And you can certainly see New Orleans everywhere in the movie. The French Quarter is definitely Jackson Square, St. Louis, Louis Cathedral, uh, are in several scenes, including Tiana's Wedding Parade. The restaurant where Tiana works at the beginning is based somewhat on Café du Monde and Morning Call. Um, the streetcars, we watched Tiana ride the streetcar on the St. Charles line to get to her job at the restaurant. And one of her patrons, Big Daddy, lives in the Garden District. And fun fact, the voice of Big Daddy, John Goodman, also has a house in the Garden District, which is kind of cool. Joan Fetter is a former writer for the Disney travel site AllEars.net and Disney aficionada. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Dan. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, former Disney travel writer with AllEars.net, Joan Fetter, and Michael Bell, 
the National World War II Museum's executive director of the Jenny Craig Institute for the Study of War and Democracy. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.